Everybody's bodies are different. My body likes to have a lot of rest. If I if I was going to compete with all the aerialists in the whole world, whatever that means, I wouldn't be the best aerialist. But I know I'm a pretty good aerialist. I'm good at what I do, um, and my body works hard physically and mentally. So that's the other thing. And so rest is important. And also, I'm realizing more and more, especially after the PhD, that rest is also a practice, and that if you don't practice rest. A, you know, a bit like practicing sleep. You know, some people have to practice sleep. If you don't practice rest, you don't get very good at resting. So um, it's good to keep up with that practice. Like you have a yoga practice or you have a physical practice. And it's good to train your brain to be like, right, I'm in bed now and I'm reading my book and I don't have to check my emails and I don't have to feel guilty about the fact that it's Sunday and I'm not training. I'm allowed to laze around in bed and eat toast or whatever. Hello, and welcome to the Natural Healthcare Network podcast. My name is Deb McLeod, and I really appreciate your sitting in and listening in. Today, I am delighted to say I have two people joining me. One is Laura Murphy. She is an artist. She's a doctor of theater performance. She is a circus next laureate, and she's going to talk about being an aerialist. And I was lucky enough to have Laura join me because Claire Sinton works with Laura. Claire is a sports medicine physio and nutritional therapist. And Claire and I talk with Laura about her life, about her doctorate, about living as an aerialist, living as an athlete, and a performer. And it is a diverse discussion as she is herself. So I hope you enjoy listening in to this as much as I enjoyed being a part of it. Laura and Claire, thank you so much for joining me on my show. It is great to have you here with me today. It's great to be here. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Deb. <laughs> Claire, again, I don't know how many shows we've done together, Claire, but we've done several. This is fun. Now, Laura, Claire and I are here because it's all about you. We're here to talk about you, your personal story. I know enough about you because I follow you on Instagram and see all the amazing things you do on a rope, which sounds really strange, but we'll hear more about this. <laughs> but um, we're here today to talk about your personal story and how you stay well, what you do on just with your livelihood and all the various fascinating aspects of your life that I think are going to be intriguing for the listeners. Does that sound about right? So I thought you'd be a great guest, Laura, because you're super active, super intelligent, a little bit controversial and very fun. And so, and also you, you've got a really... Um, strong view of kind of natural health and and really keeping yourself well and as we discussed before um, that you you train like an athlete but you also work really really hard you know sat at a computer um, and obviously doing your PhD and Go ahead, Dr. Murphy. Tell us why you did it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Why Why did I do a PhD? It's always a great question, isn't it, for anyone? Why yeah. did you do a PhD? Like, why, actually? <laughs> yeah. what, is, what is wrong with you? <laughs> what is wrong with you? Actually, and I, I, I've just, I've finished my PhD about a year ago. And actually, I'm just getting to the point now where I'm really pleased that I did it. But right. it did take me five years and it was really, really tough. Um, I think it was extra. T- I mean, I think PhDs are always hellishly tough for anybody. 
but I think mine was extra hellishly tough because um, I'm a circus performer and I'm an academic and my practice, my PhD is about my practice as a circus performer, as an aerialist. So my PhD research looked a bit like lots of writing, lots of library research, as you would expect, but also training like an athlete, like Claire says, but also physical like performative and choreographic research on the rope. So it really was a seven day a week job for about five years. Um, yeah. And and the <clears throat> title of your PhD was Deconstructing the Spectacle, Aerial Work as Critical Practice. That's right. So sure. <laughs> can you break that down a little bit for us? <laughs> yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I started my PhD um, actually Actually, I didn't start with that title. I wanted to research um, performance lectures as a live artist. I was really interested in performance as activism and performance as a sort of medium for social change and looking at how you could communicate massive ideas about around social change and sort of, uh, yeah, ideas for, I guess, improving society, although I guess that's a dangerous kind of way to describe it Um, but through through performance and I was really interested in performance lectures because they kind of married the performative but also kind of academic and scientific ideas and the performance lecture medium was an interesting way of kind of being playful and subverting and undermining and making ideas potentially more digestible and multifaceted so that's what I originally envisioned for my PhD but I also had a kind of like secret practice not so secret practice it's my fun practice as um as an aerialist and I had my kind of like cool academic live art practice where I thought about you know performance lectures and big social ideas and they existed very very separately so I applied and got funding for my academic performance lecture practice and then I had a job just before I was about to start my PhD and um someone was like you know why why are you not amalgamating this like kind of critical live art practice you've got and your aerial practice you've got really strong ideas about circus all you talk about is how you're really frustrated with the lack of social engagement you see in circus work and the lack of political engagement why don't you actually marry these two things and then I was like actually yeah why did I never think of that so um, after they gave me funding I changed my research title which is allowed <laughs> Um, and ended up doing this five-year PhD researching whether or not you can integrate aerial rope work specifically because that's my discipline into sort of performance work that can provide some sort of social or political commentary on sort of I guess on yeah on social social or political issues and ideas Um, and I ended up making three pieces of practical performance work and writing a 70,000 word thesis which is now finished. (laughs) Now, can I ask? That's that's amazing. You know, just listen to me. Go now. I'm getting ready to jump back. You know, seventy thousand word thesis is um, that's a chunky old thesis. But my mind is going back to why and what got you into aerial work, into wanting to swing around on ropes, and and you know, can you can you give me just a little bit of background on this so I can contextualize it? Because you know, I like to. To, to trying to pull it all in together, or maybe you don't know that, but I do. I like to find out why do. Did you want to do that. <laughs> I know now. <laughs> I know now. Um, I'm afraid the answer is probably not as exciting as um, it should be. Doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> I trained as a dancer when I was younger. I've always wanted to work in performing arts, and I went to a performing arts school called the Brit School between the ages of 14 and 18. 
who like fund the Brit Awards. It's a free performing arts school in South London. And I trained as a dancer for two years. I wasn't actually very good at dance. What kind of dance? Contemporary dance. I started off doing Irish dancing when I was a kid. <laughs> and then I um, I trained contemporary, like contemporary dance and street and tap and that sort of thing. And then when I was 16, I got punched in the face quite oh. badly and um, sustained two whiplash injuries and I had a nasty concussion. Um, and I had to have some time off doing dance and I transferred to a different course. And actually, in a way, it was a blessing in disguise because um, I had some time to be an actual teenager running around being naughty, mm-hmm. doing what naughty teenagers do, um, and not thinking about my Don't career. believe that of you. Me? <laughs> Never. <laughs> um, and, but I think doing dance gave me a really good physical grounding and sort of like being active, and I was really into, I've always been really into climbing and just running around and just doing stuff and being physical. Um, and I just started doing circus because my girlfriend at the time started doing aerial classes, and she did a course... Um, and I wrote music at the time and they asked if they could use some of my music on a sort of like little mini documentary they were making about the course, which was also like a social engagement project. And they said, in return, you can come and have some free classes. We can use your music. So that's where I started doing Ariel. And I just kind of naturally took to it because I was strong. I could um, I could climb a rope, a rope, sorry, a rope, a rope and turn upside down <laughs> from sort of like the first time of trying it. So it was really uh-huh. a sort of like um, it was a really gratifying um, experience whereas I think some people try aerial and it's really really tough if you don't have a f- upper body strength or you don't have core strength because you have to spend yeah. so long just being able to climb the rope that everything you know everything just comes very very slowly so you have to really persevere um, right. and people do do that I teach people all the time and um, as a teacher you get confident that people can do it you know if they persevere but for, you know some people it takes a few months um, but I was really lucky and I could do it straight away. So I think it was an, an easy thing for me to take to. So um, a lot of people don't really get what a circus performer does. I mean, I, I think yeah. a large proportion of the population think that circus performers travel around the country and live in tents or caravans. Um, now, for some of the circus population, that is true. But what what people don't um, necessarily realizes that that actually a lot of circus performers that do live in trucks or caravans actually live together on a kind of bought plot of land and and live as a community um you don't you live in a house I don't I live in a house <laughs> a rented house um in Bristol <laughs> You're asking kind of what my structure is. I live in a house, but I am part of a bigger community. But my life as a circus performer is like I'm a freelance artist. I go train. I travel a lot, though. Yeah, you travel a lot, but but it's not kind of that traveling big top circus. It uh, what I'm trying to get at is that life as a circus performer is basically being a full time athlete, having to train, having to warm up, having to cool down, having to do all your rehab, having to um, do conditioning, make sure you mentioned about upper body strength. I mean, it's, you know, performance life is hard. It's hard on your body. Um, but also you've, you've got that that art side of things, which I always, I think is incredible because when you're an athlete and you've got to reach a finish line or you've got to score a goal or, you know, you've got a main focus and it's... Um, 
And it doesn't matter what you look like whilst you're doing it. You can, you know, be sweating profusely, be red in the face and and all of that. But when you're performing as an aerialist, you need to show um, no exertion, really. You you want to be like the swan and everything's kind of going on um, below the surface. And um, I just, I think it's incredible. It, it, it shows tremendous athleticism and physicality, but also that mental toughness to put your body through that and, and not show it to your audience. Um, so I guess that's, that's what I wanted to kind of convey was the life of a circus performer yeah. is, is much more of a, um, you know, being a, a honed athlete as well. It's not a common, it's not going to be a common, so no one would know that, oh, you have to do all of this stuff. So that's leading me down the road of lots of questions, yeah. but you should go jump in, Laura. You were going to say something. Yeah, sure. I guess I just uh, riffing off what Claire's saying, I guess it's a little bit like being, It's I, I, I see it's more like being a dancer maybe, but a yeah. really athletic dancer. That, I mean, but it really depends on the type of dance you do. And I guess also the type of aerial work that I make still within the world of circus is still quite unconventional where I do have to be able to you're right um really keep it below the surface if something is painful or if it's difficult um but also the kind of work I make does really overlap with kind of more of a live art sort of aesthetic which it where it is really about sort of um exposing the mechanisms working and really getting you to look at the body in action but really look at the body rather than look at the image of the body or an idea of the body if that kind of if that makes sense yeah. um and the yeah. kind of artistic and creative work I make is really in um it's really interested in queerness and feminism and how we look at women and how we look at female bodies so it plays with that relationship between the kind of eff- effortlessness and grace and um the kind of hidden exertion of labor versus the you know the actuality of like real labor real hard graft like the real body in action um but I really see it a lot um I guess like with an athlete you've got you've got a finish line you need to be able to run 100 meters in x amount of time or I can't think of another example um (laughs) but my goals are to be as kind of um choreographically flexible and to open up as many options for myself as a as a physical artist as possible so I want to be able to do some really kick-ass big tricks and do some really cool uh gravity defying stuff but I also want to be able to kind of access different movement qualities and to be able to think about how that could fit into a concept I'm working on so it's that thing again that marriage between kind of like the intellect and the concept and physicality and I think that moves the goalpost a bit for me as an artist and as an athlete um the thing the thing that strikes me um about yourself and and many of your colleagues uh, is that your um your body awareness is incredible because every movement takes such thought and there's always kind of the connection between the the mental aspect and the physical aspect and I think sometimes as as an athlete you have to kind of switch off the mental in order to 
to kind of move forward and you know and forget your nerves and all the rest of it and put that somewhere else but actually as a circus performer you're you're tying in the mental aspect with the physical so you know where your body is in space or you try to know where your body is yeah, in yeah. space at all points <laughs> in that reality can, can I ask you just as an aside this is gonna you may you may boo hiss me but the type of aerial work that you do I would equate more to the Cirque du, Cirque du Soleil type of aerial work where it's it's art on a rope where you can actually watch the 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 physicality of what those people are doing up in the air. And is, is that right? I, I realize it's probably, I'm probably, oh, you're, you're, you're saying that's not right at all. <laughs> no, so, um, but, but but that's how I, that's kind of the jump that I make as, as, as um, saying a really narrow, well, I'm not going to say that, but as someone who would say, Oh, growing up as a child, seeing a circus performer and someone up, up on a, a trapeze artist swinging back and forth and doing that to then actually having seen, the performers in the Cirque du Soleil doing amazing things and the beauty of their bodies and what they can do and the capability and the the physical strength that they use is where I am right now. So obviously you're doing something even more. So I don't know that and I wonder if the public does. So that's one thing. And then the other thing that I really want to get into is how you, because you have so much physical work, mental work, you have this in- sense of needing to, to keep your body in the best shape you possibly can so you get into image. But I'm just thinking about how do you take care of yourself? So I'd like us to go down those roads from just the brief amount of time we've started, if that's okay. So you can jump back and say, no, you're completely wrong about Cirque du Soleil. <laughs> that is just, you killed our, our art and our trade or whatever. I don't mind. I'm just saying that's where my mind is right now, I'm sure as well. This, this is why Laura is amazing for this. <laughs> so, Cirque du Soleil, um, <laughs> it's just, uh, it's inter- actually, it's interesting that you say that um, because I guess actually there are similarities in the way that I make, I guess it's called, it's a kind of circus theatre, and I guess Cirque du Soleil make a kind of circus theatre. The huge difference is, I guess, the politics surrounding our work. I mean, Cirque du Soleil are a huge international enterprise. They um, they often take on ex-professional um, gymnasts and train them up to become athletes in their shows. Um, their work, um, I would say, very much kind of engages with a kind of I'm trying to think I guess like a real spectacular aesthetic which is really about entertainment and the work I make actually isn't it is entertaining but it's not about entertainment um right. in my my show Contra I was touring last year and up until really Covid struck and knocked everything out for us um Contra is a show about the way society looks and sort of owns and occupies women's bodies I perform naked um for the duration of the show. Um, I um, I talk a lot. I talk a lot about my own personal experiences. I talk about bodily functions. I talk about poo. I talk about lesbian sex. <laughs> um, I lip sync misogynistic stand-up comedy routines. Um, it's a real collage of different perspectives, um, different social perspectives. You also... You also use a lot of comedy in your in the way you deliver it as well, don't you? you mm. 
it, you know, it, it's a whole performance in terms of it's, you know, you, you have your aerial side of things, but there's the, everything that you say is, is kind of, kind of comedic and um, not necessarily meaning to, but in a kind of people understand what you mean or, or um, identify with it. And, um, and you're trying to kind of evoke something in people with it, aren't you? Just bringing it back to the Cirque du Soleil thing. I mean, it, you don't do it covered in sequins. Um, it's it's very raw performance. It's not about kind of perfection and you know and and beautiful curves and lines and you know and and that kind of sexual body. It's actually more about. Um, taking down the image of perfection and um, putting out a real kind of raw, muscular, um, strong female presence. Am I right? Or- uh, no, no, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. And it's really, I guess the, the main thing that is different is that um, I guess work like Cirque du Soleil, it's, it's very much about surface and it's very much about aesthetic and it's not yeah. at all subjective in any way and you could replace the performers in the show and you wouldn't actually you wouldn't know necessarily yeah. um if you right. swapped them in yeah. and out um I get that. whereas I guess the kind of work I make like I was saying previously um it really pulls on this kind of live art aesthetic where somebody else could do exactly the same show as me and it would be a different show because it would be a different body um it, yeah it would be a different thing and and you come from your life experiences as well don't you so it's it's also very much your experience of the world and um and people identifying with with that and um I think like what I what I find really interesting um about you is is like how you kind of train your body to do the things that you do get your strength how you maintain um your fitness how you can you talk us through what you um say in the run-up to a practice session talk us through what you walk in the door of the of the studio what do you do boom what happens well actually prior to when I walk into the studio one of the things I will put on the table that is probably the most important thing I've learned from all of this is just is actually rest rest actually over training um which controversial it's really important to train hard but if um the, one of the biggest things I've learned is that if I'm if I'm tired and I'm burnt out t- I take a week off I take a week off everything don't do it you know yeah. I maybe do you know I, I walk I'm active and maybe I'll cycle a little bit and I do a bit of yoga but actually sometimes my body just needs at least a week off and I come back after a week and I'm I'm bouncing back again and I think uh, I wish I could just tell my younger self just take a week off like lays around on the Lays around on the sofa. <laughs> we all do. But, um, How do you do. identify <laughs> that in yourself? Um, for me, there's a lot. Of, um, I think um, not repairing after a good night's sleep. Also, if my sleep is too disrupted from overtraining, that's another thing I notice. Um, muscle repair. If my muscles just, you know, if I'm feeling too... There's a line and you kind of just know it with yourself between being like, I trained yesterday and I'm a bit sore, but I can go in and do another session. I'm okay for today. And between and also feeling like I'm just on the edge and I can't quite, I'm finding it difficult to kind of complete other tasks. I'm not focusing. You just need to rest. Rest is so important. Um, so yeah, that's, I, 
it's a, it's a fine line and I guess you have to know when to push it but quite often if I've got a gig coming up and I'm really tired I won't do heavy training sessions if I think I have to do something I'll go in for an hour and I'll kind of mark through the stuff I have to do just so it's in my muscle memory and then I'll leave yeah um yeah. And I think it's really important to recognize that sometimes rest is better than training it sounds really obvious yeah. um but I don't know if all circus performers know that definitely rest over training sometimes you know what I don't I don't think many people do that in terms of if you're athletic and physical in your body rest is sometimes the hardest thing mentally to do and and you're always thinking yeah you feel like you have to be active in order to be um progressing or moving productive moving forward with it yeah so so Laura sorry sorry to interrupt you what was it that that made you what was it in you that thought okay actually resting is a good thing what was it that happened I can't remember a specific incident it was probably from real I think it might have been through like accidentally having a week off at some point going on probably going on a holiday or something and then coming back and being like oh my god like I feel amazing I'm just shooting to the <laughs> ceiling on this rope <laughs> um, and and, clock it, and clocking in. I mean, everybody's bodies are different. My body likes to have a lot of rest. If I, if I was going to compete with all the aerialists in the whole world, whatever that means, I wouldn't be the best aerialist. But I know I'm a pretty good aerialist and I'm good at what I do. Um, and my body works hard physically and mentally. So that's the other thing. And so... Rest is important. And also I'm realizing more and more, especially after the PhD, that rest is also a practice. And that if you don't practice rest, you know, a bit like practicing sleep, you know, some people have to practice sleep. If you don't practice rest, you don't get very good at resting. And so um, it's good to keep up with that practice. Like you have a yoga practice or you have a physical practice. And it's good to train your brain to be like, right, I'm in bed now and I'm reading my book and I don't have to check my emails and I don't have to feel guilty about the fact that it's Sunday and I'm not training. I'm allowed to laze around in bed and eat toast or whatever and read my book (laughs) and watch Netflix. And that's good. And that's good for me because I'm nourishing myself and really having that approach of like, I'm nourishing myself. I'm aware, Claire, that I went off on a tangent about before I get into the training space so I can totally I can totally tell you <laughs> no no actually what you're leading me on to is that um I know that you've you've been vegan you have you're kind of aware of being more gluten-free you um have been sugar-free um and now correct me if I'm wrong do you eat everything <laughs> I eat everything. I mean, my approach generally is um, the only thing I feel like isn't great is probably I eat a bit too much bread because it's like a quick thing. Um, but it's never given me loads of problems. So it's also, it's it's never been like a danger zone for me. I'm just like, oh, I'm eating a bit too much peanut butter on toast, probably, or almond butter on toast <laughs> or whatever. But I'm also aware it could be worse. Um, one of the reasons I stopped being vegan, initially when I first went vegan, I felt great. Um, and then especially when I started touring and I couldn't be so in charge of my diet and I was traveling to different places like France and around Europe where it's just not some common practice to put protein in vegan meals and I just was struggling my main uh, the main turning point for me is I went to America um, to do a research (laughs) fellowship in Texas for 
three months <laughs> and I was vegan when I was there and um, I was doing a lot of cycling and I don't know if it was the change in the food or how it was grown or if it was my diet or just something changed in my body but I just I don't know how much I dropped in weight but I was extremely skinny and really hungry all the time and really really tired and then whilst I was in America um, I also had a bike accident um, and got really really poorly afterwards um, and it was following the bike accident that year um, and having a sort of longer process of recovery that I start I started integrating more animal products into my diet um, um, yeah. fish and eggs and then later on um, actually when I was finishing up writing my PhD I just started craving chicken all the time and I'm a real big believer that if your body's asking for something it probably wants it or it wants something I know there's a bit you know there's going to be a discussion mm -hmm. around sugar there but um so I started I've started integrating meat into my diet I have very heavy periods which um, I have to manage with my training and making sure I get enough iron um, and I just yeah. feel a lot healthier being an omnivore. I don't follow a very strict diet. I try to reduce my sh my refined sugar intake, but I still eat things like maple syrup and honey, but not in excess. Um, and I, but I enjoy food as well, and I enjoy cooking. And I, I gem, I yeah, I, I I work kind of intuitively with what I eat and how I eat, with a kind of like sensible approach to eating lots of sort of fresh produce but also not giving myself a hard time about if I occasionally want to eat a piece of cake and I don't calorie count or anything like that. Have you always been that way? Has that, has that, have you always had that mindset or is that because of, well, which yeah, particular kind of, I kind of work intuitively or the omnivorous kind of approach or. No, just being very more intuitively and being much more relaxed about what you're eating and paying attention to yourself and what you feel your body needs. I think needs. when I was younger, like many people, sort of like in my early 20s, I was really keen to try and be, um, I was keen to be vegan for political and social reasons, um, environmental and obviously animal welfare. Um, my focus was on that and not thinking about what my body needed so much because I wasn't an athlete I guess um and I and I functioned perfectly well being vegan for a really long time being vegan and vegetarian um I guess the more time I've spent working with my body and doing more training the more you learn to trust what your body wants a bit like the rest thing so if I keep on thinking yeah. about eating chicken, mm. maybe there's some amino, amino acids in chicken that my body needs to eat, but someone else's body might not feel like that. Um, so checking in with those impulses, of, you know, like, oh, I really fancy cucumber, but maybe there's something I really want. Actually, that seems to be working quite well for me. Um, I don't yeah. know. I actually don't know if it's a good approach or not, but um, I feel pretty good. Um, and you can tell if you're healthy or not, if your skin's good, if you've got energy, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Do you supplement at all? Yep. I take supplements. I take, I'm thinking a lot at the moment, actually. I'm taking a, a lysine and vitamin C, mega complex. I take zinc, vitamin D, magnesium. I take iron. Um, I take spartone iron. I feel like I'm missing one out. B12. And, uh, I've run out of my other B complex, but yeah take quite a lot of vitamins <laughs> so 
And why, 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 oh, sorry, Claire, were you going to ask her what I was going to ask her? Why are you on those? Um, I guess I feel better. I feel healthier when I take, when I supplement with vitamins. I I feel like my diet is really good. Um, I can't always afford to eat um, loads of organic food or maybe like the perfect diversity of fruit and vegetables that, you know, that would make me into like the perfectly healthy person. Um, I, I guess um, <laughs> because because we live in England. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's not super sunny here, so vitamin D is a really important one. Um, I'm aware that through training a lot, also like I'm, I don't want to. Um, I'll probably use things up in excess that other people wouldn't, especially things like magnesium. I feel like if I train a lot. Um, I take magnesium tablets and I often use magnesium spray as well, but it improves my general feeling of well-being so much. I feel so much more calm and relaxed, able to fall asleep better, and my muscle recovery is a lot better as well. Um, they re- they reckon in Europe up to 80% of the population are actually totally deficient in magnesium. So it's, uh, it's a pretty sensible one to start with. Um, and you know it's very topical um, around vitamin D at the moment and the effects that it has on supporting the immune system as well as looking at the receptors which are involved in the coronavirus Um, so it's uh, and as we go into the autumn winter months uh, when our sunlight gets less so it sounds like you've got a pretty pretty good grasp on what suits you and uh, um (sighs) Did you research that yourself? Did you identify those or did you did you get some suggestions from Claire? Did you, have you worked with Claire on this at all? Or have you just, because obviously, it's not to negate other people at all, but obviously you're very bright, you're very capable. Uh, have you just thought, okay, these are things that I know from research that this is what I need to do? Um, I guess I've grown up, my mum is very sort of health aware and very much into natural medicine. Um, and she supplements a lot. So I've always kind of used um, vitamins and supplements to support my immune system. I do admittedly go through phases, often when they run out, where I don't have them for a bit, and I'm like, got to top them up. Um, but especially when I'm in periods where I'm working really hard and burning the candle at both ends, I'm just, yeah, I, I feel better. But Claire has been a, a really great um, source of support and also just feedback about what vitamins to take. I've switched to the Cytoplan brand. Um, yeah, due to Claire's right. influence. Um, also, I my, love them. Yeah, no, they're, they're great. They're really good quality vitamins. Um, and also I have a herbalist who I work with in Bristol. I don't see her all the time, but every so often right. um, I do... Um, yeah, I do use um, herbal medicine to support things like my periods and my mental health or if I'm just feeling a bit sort of run down and burnt out because um, I'm really into, um, is it called adaptogenic medicine, Chloe? You'll be able to correct me on this, working with adaptogens. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Working to like ashwagandha of, and mushrooms. Or? Yeah, and get it. Yeah, there's another one. Um, getting to yeah, getting my adaptogens working well. There was a phase during my couple of phases during my PhD where I had absolutely horrific insomnia from just working yeah. too too hard. And um, it's really great to also work with a herbalist who kind of really explains how your body 
is working and why it's doing that and you know understanding that your body sometimes gets stuck on one mode and taking medicine to help your body switch between like active and sleep modes and just understanding that better so um it's Anwen from the Ryzen Clinic has also been a really big influence in how I think about my sort of health yeah I think um the thing that's important to mention is that um as a performer you kind of build a little bit of a team around you don't you like you you know you've got a really decent osteopath you've got me as a physio uh singing my own praises here um and a bit of nutrition (laughs) and then um and then a herbalist as well like you have a a lot of really good um influences and and people that kind of help to hold your your health space for you if you know when you need it absolutely absolutely and also actually I should probably add into that is other other performers you know like we other aerialists we all talk to each other and go you know we're always feeding back to each other oh I feel a bit like this oh have you tried this and then you're like might be like oh actually I've run out of that or I haven't I was doing that and I'm not doing that anymore um and that's also really useful we all you know often I mean Claire knows she treats a lot of other um performers who are my friends or colleagues um, but we, you know, like we swap information and knowledge and we do a lot of sort of supporting of each other. And that's also really amazing. Um, cause sometimes you, you think, oh, I've got this thing and it feels really unique and actually like five other people have got it or cause we do the same sort of mad stuff with our bodies or lib, you know, slightly, <laughs> slightly crazy non nine to five lifestyles where we tour a lot and have to push ourselves really hard and then rest or, you know, whatever. Well, that leads me on to, um, it just how do you how do you do it i mean you've got uh, as claire was saying earlier you've got uh, you really have to be switched on on all circuits so you've got to be thinking about what you're doing because you can hurt yourself if you're not switched on obviously so my mind's going on two two ways is one how do you maintain that sense of staying switched on and completely tuned into your body because you've got to do that but also what do you do if you have an accident? What, or you know, when you injure yourself, how do you take care of yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So, in terms of staying switched on, um, I, I think it's coming back to the rest thing. I live um, also the added uh, thing of coronavirus right now because it's knocked out a lot of my touring work. So, I'm taking on other work. So, I'm, I'm lecturing at a circus university and teaching a sort of very theory and history driven course. And recently I had to do two weeks of rehearsals, but then also sort of squeeze in a bit of teaching, which was just absolute madness. Um, but I had to do it. And my main thing is actually just to try and be really calm. I had um, I was feeling a bit overwhelmed and stressed. and I had to call my mum, who's my my grounding person, who I always call. She's she's Aww. brilliant. And um, sometimes, you know, she was like, you know, look, look, babe, basically, you know, it's really tough right now. And it's obviously not ideal, but at least you're working and loads of people don't have jobs, which sounds like a really obvious thing to say, but actually even just those words just change my mindset. So I feel a bit more like, right, okay, I'm going to get on with it. And sometimes it is just about your mental approach, like not being stressed, doing the best job you can do, not giving yourself a hard time, taking rest when you can. Sounds really cheesy, but really just try, try to enjoy the everyday, like get up, um, Go outside, make yourself a cup of tea that you really like. Take 15 minutes to read your book in bed or do whatever you want to do. But really trying to take pleasure in everything that you do. 
Um, I know it's not always possible, but for me, it has a huge effect on my mental health and also my tiredness and how I approach being really busy. Um, I saw a book a while ago, which I didn't buy, but I felt like the title was enough. <laughs> but it was, I don't need to read that, but the title looked great. But it was about <laughs> um, too busy, but it was about embracing that. That. being busy and embracing um, juggling all those things rather than feeling swamped and sort of drown, drowning and trying to mm. really be like, yeah, look at all this stuff. It's great. Rather than being like, ah, I'm drowning. And I sometimes, quite often actually, do go, ah, I'm drowning. Um, <laughs> but sometimes all I need is a conversation with someone to just help me switch my mindset around. And that is that can sometimes be the, the biggest job out of everything. So I don't know if that, that kind of answers the first part of your question. But in terms of injury, really depends on the injury. Uh, I injured my hand recently, um, as Claire knows. It felt like a really silly injury, but often actually injuries are silly and they happen when they're the ones that happen when you least expect it. Sometimes um, it's always off the kit or at the end of a training session where you have, you're not switched on, you've been switched on yeah, and then you just try something and you're not thinking and that's when you get injured. That's always the danger zone. And that's not always, um, but that's, yeah, that's been a, an area to be aware of I guess as an aerialist it it's quite common actually that um as you're fatiguing towards the end of a session or just slightly taking your your eye off the ball or your nerves your neuromuscular connection is just starting to get a little bit fatigued that's exactly when you're going to injure yourself and and it's also when you're warm so you think oh you know I'm fine I'm I'll I'll just try this um, before I go home. I just want to try it. And um, and that's when you do it. And um, the call that you put through to me on that day from the training space, video call, going, look, my hand's really fat. What do I do? It felt so silly. Um, I was just, I wasn't, you know what? I wasn't even training aerial. I was, um, I was messing around with some choreography that I wanted to try before my rehearsals. Um, I was got really into it and I was just swinging my arm around and something, it must've been, maybe my arm was really loose, who knows, because I'd been training and something, a nerve, what happened, Claire, like something just went pop in my hand, basically, I'm guessing, um, and just ballooned. And obviously, I mean, my main, the main thing actually, I mean, Claire's an absolutely fantastic physio. Like I really, you know, there's no one who compares to, um her for me like she is an absolutely integral part of my team but one of the most important things Claire's kind of installed in me is actually not to panic about injuries <laughs> because it makes it a lot worse I've got a rib um that likes to sublex every now and then and when it goes it's extremely painful and makes me really sick and I often can't do anything but often the stress around knowing that it's been really painful before and it could be painful again I think probably makes it worse. And it was one of the best things you've said to me, Claire, which is about trying not to preempt it being terrible, um, which is a really easy thing to do because you're like, oh my God, my body that, you know, gives me so much and I need for my work. And I, you know, um, what have I just done to it? So it's, you know, that 
again back to like positive mental attitude even when it absolutely pains you also feels like a really crucial part of the healing process as well as all the other important things that you have to do physically and I think sometimes a bit of laughter um, can go a long way. I mean, when I'd stopped laughing on the phone about how you'd done it. Um, I'm glad you take pleasure in my Hey, listen, I've had her work on me before and I just hated her. I she absolutely is mean. Hated she laughs her. when she puts needles in you. <laughs> She does. She does. I, she does. Listen to her. She's mm. even laughing right now. I have no love for her. So, Claire, do you find with um, the clients that you see, do you, I know because you've got multifaceted talents yourself. So with Laura, are you able to incorporate some of the nutritional work with, uh, with the injuries as yeah. well? Any anyone that's ever had a treatment session with me <laughs> knows that I talk nonstop from start to finish. And I'm just trying to fill that person with as much information around their injury and how they can get better as quickly as possible. So basically my approach is throw the kitchen sink at it. I don't want to, you know, for my for my own personal practice, I don't want to measure um you know, one method and see if it works and three weeks later go, oh, no, that didn't work. So let's do something else. I know that she's so if Laura's got a date for a performance in three weeks, probably two weeks, maybe at the weekend, actually, it's normally <laughs> like last minute. Oh, my God, I'm performing. Um, this is when I need to be fit. And I'm thinking, how the heck am I going to get her to hang upside down eight foot plus above the floor and um make sure that she's safe to do so and not going to suddenly drop out the air um and potentially with in in some circumstances with someone else attached so it's it's just really important you know from from a um preserving life point of view um (laughs) But what I think is is um, fascinating about this, Claire, is that you've almost got um, an overly, uh, it's not inflated or um, it, because you're working with athletes, you almost do have to throw everything yeah. their way. Whereas if it's an individual that you're working with, it's going to be a different approach. But you know, with Laura, she's got to have every yeah. possible thing to help support her body because she's got to perform she has to be able to do it because the show is going to go on it does go on and you've got to define the best ways to enable their their wellness and their well-being whilst they're they're swinging around and and i think the the reason that i enjoy working with circus performers is because whatever whatever their body can do at that moment in time they want to do something better with it than they could do. So they're always chasing that little bit extra flexibility or that little extra strength or trying to do a trick that they couldn't do and they want to be able to do. And in their head, there is nothing that is going to stop them. And quite often, um, well, nearly all the time, circus performers even though they'll tell you that they're the least flexible person you've ever worked with, they're hypermobile, right? Um, 
so some more than others <laughs> um but yeah so you're working with bodies that need huge amounts of stability and understanding where their body is in space and neuromuscular control so their nerves and their muscles knowing where their limb is in space um huge amounts of you know core stability or dynamic core stability so they need to be able to move breathe and be able to know where their body is in space so uh, these are quite um extreme maneuvers um with an with a large element of risk and (laughs) (laughs) look at her laughing she's going no it's no problem i've seen you swinging off those ropes i have i have and so I'm going to jump around on you here for just a minute because I, this brings up a really interesting thing. And you you talk about this in your own performance, Laura. And I'd like, if you don't mind, for us to talk a little bit Absolutely. about body awareness because Claire is working with athletes who've got to have, you know, everyone, ha- they're athletes, performers like yourself, you're an athlete as well. But it's that that desire to have your body in the best shape it possibly can be your, your utmost fitness, your, you know, the, I, you know, I'm bungling the word, but you know what I mean. And then for you as a performer, this is, I feel like it's such an important topic anyway, but can we talk a little bit about body awareness right now? I don't know exactly what the question would be, but um, is that is that something you two would like to chat about or not? You can say no, and we can talk about something else. I don't. We can talk about. I guess I, um, I think I want a little bit more um, specificity and what you mean by body like awareness. Um... Well, what I'm thinking about is as a performer, where you were talking earlier about uh, with Cirque du Soleil, saying they have the costumes, they have this and that, and and there's that element of you have to be, you have to look perfect, you have to be perfect, you have to do everything perfectly. Okay. And then where you are more on the the raw edge of you are who you are, and yet you still, your body needs to be in its best and most best possible shape it can be. Are there issues, and Claire, you must see this, are there issues that you have or have had about your own body image and your body awareness being in that sort of level of work? Does that make sense, what I've just said? Uh, yeah, no, that makes absolute sense. Um, I think that's a really interesting question, especially because of the nature of like the show I've been touring where I'm naked yeah. on stage. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there isn't any hiding. Um, I think actually touring that show has been really interesting and it's been really, it's, you know what, it's taught me a really valuable lesson about just looking at your, if when you have to look, you look at so many photos and videos of yourself naked and my body changes from week to week to week. Um, I did uh, some um, R&D creation for new work a couple of weeks ago and it's just before my period. I'm like I'm loads heavier I'm rounder um I'm naked in that footage as well (laughs) um (laughs) you know from week you know week to week to week my body changes um so now that I've had my period um I you know I'm much much skinnier you can you know like you can see on my muscles and I just have to learn to accept it um it's also it's a show about to show about the way society sort of owns women's bodies. I'm under no illusions that I, you know, I'm 
I'm I'm slim. I'm an athlete. Um, but in terms of circus is a very and performance is a very particular world, which is very um, which is very driven by aesthetics. And of course, it's really easy to kind of get sucked into yeah. that sometimes. But it's um, the type. I I guess I feel also kind of lucky with the type of work that I make, which is also really about celebrating nuance and difference. And I guess I train my body for functionality, not for aesthetics. So, you know, if I wanted to have, um, I put this very much in inverted commas, the ideal body, I probably wouldn't do aerial. <laughs> I'd probably go and do some very specific personal trainer course at the gym um, because aerial doesn't sculpt your body to kind of fit into traditional feminine ideals or maybe masculine ideals. I don't, the, I don't know. You know what, though? Um, I... I kind of disagree with that because I think um you know having a really strong set of shoulders which you have to have with Ariel because you're spending most of your time hanging from your shoulder girdle rather than on land um and I I think having kind of um really strong um shoulder girdle and and being really strong through your core and I mean Laura you're you're a very strong um, personality too I think that strength um, but but also with the vulnerability of just being open and honest and and yourself totally 100% yourself which um, I think you you personify um, it, you know that real kind of strength female strength is um, a force to be reckoned with I mean I think it's really attractive and really you know I I advocate for it myself you know coming from being a rugby player and um you know and and going to the gym and um squatting more than most men in the gym um and you know it's it's really I think it's really empowering to be to know that you can trust your body physically but also it it gives you that real kind of inner strength as well to to know that you can do something as well as you do it and be able to express yourself as well as you express yourself. I think you you personify that image really well. Thanks, Claire. That's great to hear. <laughs> no, it is. It's great to hear. And no, I, I agree with you. I guess what I was saying before is that um, I feel like um, I, yeah, I feel great doing aerial. It gives me loads of confidence, um, and it teaches, and it's taught me loads about uh, trust in my own body. But I think there's also because I I also exist in a world of performance, yeah. which is very much driven yeah. by aesthetics. Um, I think that also has to be acknowledged, mm-hmm. and um, I I feel like I have a kind of easy journey through it because of the type of work that I make and the na- yeah the type of work that I make, which is very sort of subject based, autobiographical very raw so in terms of you know I've never turned up to a theatre and I've been told off because I haven't shaved my underarms <laughs> but if I were an aerialist working um in a more sort of corporate context you know yeah. it's it's unprofessional still for women to have unshaven underarms yeah. um it's it's you know it's still highly sexist in many regards I don't want to speak for all organizations but I'm speaking very very universally and very very generally so potentially I need you know I stand corrected but um there are still some very very gendered and very particular ideas around um 
yeah, around how people's bodies should look within performance and very specifically within circus performance. Right. Um, and the kind of work I make, you know, is, is pushing against that. And is that um, just what, the way you were raised? Is that because you've talked about your mom really quite fondly several times? Is that because it's just the way you were reared? Your mom is very progressive and, and wants you to be at ease with who you are? I, I, I mean, I had a very progressive thinking mother, but I'm not at ease with my body. And I think it's really exciting to see someone like you who is very at ease with herself. And I just think there's no way in hell I could be doing that, you know, standing in front of an audience naked or saying I did this and that naked. I'd just be going, uh uh-uh. So, but you seem to embrace that. And I think that's lovely. It's really wonderful that you do. But is that because of your mom or is that because of something else? I think it's partly because of my mom, but I also think... um, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. I think being queer and having a very sort of supportive, existing in this sort of like, I guess, very queer, very left-wing, quite progressive sort of um, bubble, social bubble, which is in Bristol, but also extends beyond. I think it's a real safe space um, for self-expression and ideas around gender identity and... Um, and queerness and sexuality and just ideas around the body and policing the body and kind of trying to loosen some of those sort of loosen I guess some embedded ideas around the body and spending a long time in that circle has probably had a huge influence on how I think and how I am in addition to into you know in addition to parenting I grew up in a sort of suburb of London which is not progressive or particularly left-wing um, um, I don't think I knew anyone who was gay growing up. Um, it was fine for me to be gay. Um, but I even after <laughs> growing up in that community, I went to a performing arts school where everyone was <laughs> gay. Um, and I really, I remember I was talking about this the other day, a really hot girl from the year above me asked me on a date. And I I still didn't say yes and go on a date with the really hot girl in the year abo- from the year above me because it was just so embedded in me that like being queer was like a bit wrong. Oh, right. Um, so because that's that's just social conditioning, right? And I think there's lots of other sort of social conditioning which which comes with conversations around sexuality. So being away from that, I think loosening those kind of holds has made me feel. I guess a lot more confident and a lot more comfortable and that's amazing as an adult I love I love being an adult living where I do uh doing what I do it's great oh that's nice that's really nice that's (laughs) that's cool that's cool isn't it it really is we would all love for people to be in that sort of in that space and place irrespective of what who, where, where, and how you want? We want people to be in a, a really happy and, and healthy space. Claire, I was I was just going to say that um, I know you mentioned that your mum kind of grounds you, um, and and so speaking mm. to her, you can kind of regain that grounding. And um, having spoken to your mum, and you know, and got a, <laughs> got a real idea of of who she is and and her you know, she's 100% supportive of you and your sister and, you know, and um, really, and your sister 
does extremely well as well, doesn't she? She's um, a lawyer. She's a high yeah. flyer. Yeah. <laughs> so, is she a high flyer in that she swings around on ropes, or she's a high flyer in the business world? Oh, right. No, okay. she's like uh, she works in media and television. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. She has a she has a great. <laughs> <laughs> just because you have a phd doesn't mean that it's not a grown-up i don't think i ever i don't know if i'll ever feel like a grown-up do you feel like yeah. a grown-up i don't really know i what don't that think means. you'll ever behave no, like no. one laura no, I, <laughs> I think i think i think people have to make grown-up decisions yeah. my partner and i will say every now and then you know he and i will say oh, we have to make an, an adult decision right now. But no, I think I will always be about four years old. It, it's much nicer. But isn't it just about having fun and, and that sense of fun with yourself and not taking anything too seriously? Because the minute you start taking things too seriously, you become a little bit heady. And as, as you said, like, you know, losing your grounding, you want you want that kind of nice stable base and you want to be able to to excel from there and and really um yeah and and feel secure in yourself and um that's something that you quite clearly have yeah fun is key I also I mean I'm I'm first person to say I'm really I think I think I'm so keen to um to rest and to have fun and I'm really trying to integrate this into my life because the PhD was so hard and actually it was so not fun loads of it and I had to say no to lots of fun (laughs) and I'm having a really well it you know it's just how it goes and I'm really trying to embrace and integrate back into my life um especially over the last year like fun because it's so important for your mental health and as Claire says quite rightly trying not to get stuck in that quite stressed headspace where you're always kind of like trying to progress towards a goal instead of just being where you are and taking everything kind of minute by minute hour by hour and just trying to take pleasure in the everyday um I've you know the more I think about it the, the, the more I really see it kind of um becoming more and more embedded in sort of like my my daily life and how I can actually just be healthier and happier I don't, I don't, I'm beyond caring how hippie or cheesy it sounds. I think it's great. (laughs) It's good. I think it's very good. I think it's a a really grounded way to be actually. So what's next? I mean, you, you've got, you've got your PhD. You've unfortunately had your show canceled or postponed right now because of COVID. Um, You're doing some teaching, which sounds really interesting. What, what's, what's next? What's going on with you going forward? Um, I've just started making a new show, okay. um, so I will be make hopefully fingers crossed and toes crossed. I'll be um, working towards that um, for at least the next year. I would have thought. Um, I would have thought it. Yeah, it won't. It won't premiere for at least a year, possibly like a year and a half. Okay. Um, so I've literally just started that, and the kind of the way um, creation kind of works, I guess, is that. I work with my director, Ursula Martinez, and often we, you know, we work in a sort of like in little stints. We just did two weeks. I'll have a bit of time off. We're going to do a few days next month, and then I'll apply for some more money, and we'll do another two or three weeks somewhere else and somewhere else. And I often I do work in between. I might go off and choreograph things or rehearse things or work on things or and write more material, and then we work together a bit more and a bit more until it's finished so that's on the cards um during lockdown with some of the emergency funding that me and my company 
um, got from the Arts Council, we put together an online free circus magazine to try and celebrate um, sort of difference and diversity and just some of the brilliant practitioners that are working in the UK. Often when we talk about sort of circus, I feel like we talk a lot in the UK about how great the circus is in mainland Europe, which it absolutely is, but without kind of giving some of more local artists more kudos. Right. Um, so it's a two-part publication. And we've released publication one. Um, it's myself and Nicola Court Stewart, who's my producer and also, I guess, um, co-director of our little two-person company. Um, and we've got the second part of that publication to release. It's called Circus is Not the Only Fruit. <laughs> cool <laughs> um obviously kind of riffing off Jeanette Winter Jeanette Winterson's um oranges are not the only fruit yeah in terms of a sort of um queer um and diverse lens on circus um and we've had some interviews from some really interesting directors and practitioners um yeah the first edition is online now if you want to go and have a look at it yeah yeah um, so We'll need a link of that. Do you, is Claire in it providing any nutritional stuff or is it not she's, about that at all? She's not. It's really about, um, fantastic as Claire is, um, it's really about sort of creative practice and looking right. at people's different artistic practice. And there's right. loads of different conversations going on from sort of virtuosity to sort of um, racial diversity in circus. Um, um, there's a, um, an artist who talks about um, her circus practice and sex work. Um, trying to think what else um lots of conversations around sort of devising and clowning and how people make work and what audiences they engage with it feels really important in terms of circus but also in terms of just thinking about who our work reaches on a broader scale and the and the things that we're talking can about, i socially. just mention also um because we haven't mentioned this i don't think but laura um is actually the circus next laureate for last year so um that's a huge accolade and one that a british performer hasn't had since 2012 i think was the last time um so and it's like an eu like a european wide thing yeah, it's an EU pla- it's an it's a European platform um for sort of emerging authors who are kind of developing circus in a way that's I guess that's that's different or that's pushing the boundaries of what circus is and how okay. it's made. Um so has my my has my laureateship finished yet? I technically I think technically it's finished but they still support me for like another couple of years. This amazing organization called Circus Next. And it's really actually, it's made, I feel like it's made my career. I went from being an emerging artist in the UK and kind of the kind of work I wanted to make really wasn't being supported in the UK um, because it's quite risque and I guess risk taking and very bold. Programmers and venues felt like it was too much of a risk in terms of audiences to program something that was so highly political and naked. (laughs) <laughs> and um specific Contra, i guess um actually covers kind of um some biblical stories and um biology and being wrapped up in cling film and um and you I love that. talk about things like body hair and um mental health i mean we haven't even touched on mental health and 
um, anxiety and politics and um, and arms and things like that. I mean, to you know, you you cram a lot into a a small space and and discuss a lot of topics that um, a lot of people wouldn't even dare start talking about. But I think you know now more than ever we're starting to say, you know what, it it actually it it doesn't matter about saying the wrong thing. The important thing is is that we're discussing things and. Um, yeah, you know, it, yeah. it's a little bit about kind of um, tolerance and, and things like that. But actually, it's about just living together on this planet. Um, and we're all totally different. And we all fall into a majority here and a minority there. But actually, um, discussing kind of diversity and, and, and what makes us the same and what makes us different surely without those discussions then we're just being ignorant and and you really do kind of push that message as well and and go oi let's talk about this yeah I mean I guess with Contra I guess it's really important to say that you know everything is really obvious Contra is very much made through my perspective as a white western queer woman and that you know um and very much what I talk about in Contra is things around, you know, it's it's very much based around sort of objectification, the way we kind of look at women's bodies in society, but it really ties into sort of often those things like the way, you know, like the way we view women's bodies in society is connected to patriarchy and patriarchy would be connected to X, Y, and Z, the way we treat the planet or, you know, so obviously it's like a ripple effect. We talk about one thing and you end up talking about other things. Um, but yeah, just jumping back to what um, you were saying before about Circus Circus Next, um, it was really amazing to have my work supported by that platform and it's made such a big difference to my career because I've had access to all these networks across across Europe and had the privilege of touring my show in all these different places and one of the best things about touring to all these different um, countries around Europe has been um, also the conversations around feminism and around... Um, issues around feminism um, and sometimes I have to answer really difficult questions and sometimes everything's really easy for me um, but I really value and appreciate um, people's feedback and all that dialogue and it's you know it's a really enriching experience for me to have those conversations as well as me just performing you know getting to sort of tot around Europe performing my show. And and because COVID interfered, is there no extension on your role, or have they just said sorry, your time is up? It was it's fallen, it's lousy that it's fallen amongst the COVID crisis. I know you said you still got support, but are they? Oh, it doesn't work like with coach. So basically, the way it works with the laureate ship is that they they gave me money to make my show. Right. The way it also works is that because I'm a laureate, so they're kind of like a big network. So they go, right, we've got these six laureates. These are our chosen supported artists for this period of time. And they will, um, you know, they'll literally, it's like having someone do all your promo for you. Um, And people, because that platform's really well established, venues will go and book your show, even if they haven't seen it necessarily, because... Um, it's supported by Circus Next, so you've already kind of got a tick of approval. But then, because you get so much exposure already, um, 
you get other gigs as well because you're getting to tour so much and people talk about your work more if you tour more. So it's like this massive like turbo boost to your career. Nice. That's how it was wow. for me. So we've got to the stage now where we're not reliant on gigs. We got through the Circus Next network. But because we've toured so much, we've been fortunate enough to just meet different people who are like, oh, we, you know, my colleagues saw your show there and we love it at our venue. Um, so it's just, it's that ripple out effect thing. So it's like, yeah, someone just turbocharging um, something that could have been a lot slower to start, um, which has just been amazing. For me, it's been a really amazing experience. I'm so grateful for it. And you worked hard Sounds for it. Sounds wonderful. It, do, it really does sound wonderful. And I worked my ass <laughs> for it yeah, as well. Thanks, but you love it. You love it, don't you? You really love it. And I guess even though I do love it, yeah. you, you work hard, you still love it. So it's feeding something within. Because I get the feeling with you, if you didn't enjoy it, it wouldn't be happening. No, and I work with an amazing team. It's all about, you know, like I'm saying, it's like the little things. I work with an amazing team. I get to tour with my producer, um, who's also my best friend, and we have an amazing time together. Um, my director also tours um, as a director, but also as a subtitle operator, because um, we have French and German subtitles for when we go to France and Germany. Um, and I have an amazing lighting tech. And it's just we've got like a really, like we've got a really brilliant um female-led team at the moment um which is really great and it's you know it just makes everything really fun we have fun it's back to the fun thing isn't it yeah <laughs> like sometimes it's stressful and it's hard and sometimes I have a tough gig like at the Edinburgh Fringe or whatever but you also if you're with like really like if you're with really good people you just have fun <laughs> and that's what it's all about good well said. right Claire what haven't we what haven't we talked about that we should talk about or is there anything we've missed i mean we could this is uh, i've liked this conversation because it's been really different it's been more about life and your accomplishments and i think it's uh it's been a real fly on the wall type thing i hope for the listeners but what have we missed have we missed anything do you want to talk about claire do you want to talk about mental health or any other we didn't talk about what i do actually in the rehearsal room well let's do that let's do it yeah, so, um, well, I'll, I'll kind of kick off the question that I asked before, and that's um, when you step into the rehearsal room, where do you start? How do you prepare your body to, to get on a rope? Um, cool. Well, the first thing I often do, because um, I'm always hungry, is probably eat something. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and I train, I eat a lot. Uh, what do I take into the training space with me? I take um, protein powder, I take bananas, um I take oat cakes sometimes if I'm feeling really lazy and naughty old peanut butter sandwich <laughs> <laughs> um, um and I do like the odd bit of raw chocolate as well so I often eat something when I first come in and then I um I do some light stretching and then at the moment I go straight in for a bit of cardio after I've done a bit of light stretching, I don't go straight into cardio because I don't want to pull anything, but I loosen up my shoulders and my neck and depends if I've cycled in to town or taken the bus, but if I've cycled in, I'm a bit warmer, but yeah, I want to warm up my shoulders a little bit. And then, um, I, at the moment I'm really into doing a load of skipping and tuck jump burpees. So, um, I'll bash out 200 skips. And, and quite often, like, especially we've mentioned kind of using the shoulder girdle a lot, like, um, going into some band work or some water bottle work 
so like using a TheraBand and and doing some kind of um, activations of your rotator cuff muscles, getting the shoulder girdle warm and and specifically kind of preparing your shoulders for for hanging from them. Um, Absolutely, yeah. I tend to. I've recently. I used to do it the other way around, but I've started doing cardio before, um, prior to doing that because it seems that it's like you know the activation before the activation. So if everything's warm, then I tend to switch those muscles on better, and my stabilizing muscles, um, like my abs and my glutes, for doing things like theraband work, um, are just a bit a bit happier and a bit more switched on. Um, and there's also that thing about mental focus as well. If I'm um, cardio gets me feeling a bit more focused and in the zone, whereas if I'm kind of, I just, if I, you know, especially in the winter when it's a bit cold, if I'm just sort of stretching and moving gently, it just takes more time. And at the moment, we've got quite short training yeah. slots, so you actually have to fit quite a lot into a small period of time. So you have to, you know, it's that balance between not being stressed but being quite efficient. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, and then we didn't touch on mental health, but I know that you you've touched on it in your thesis as well um, around anxiety disorder. And is that something that's come from kind of personal experience? Is this something that you've experienced in the performance world? Like how what got you onto that? Um, I made a show about anxiety disorder. It was a sh- actually yeah, no, it was a show. So I guess it was like a short kind of piece of installation work with um Ariel in it called my brain is a radio and I made it into a film and wrote about it as part of my PhD um and it's about my experience of like really crippling anxiety disorder following the year um that one of my friends committed suicide oh and um I think I have a I think I have a little bit of a predisposition to being a bit anxious from and I think that comes with being someone that's uh, very motivated and goal orientated and possibly kind of quite tuned into yeah. things as well because you're so hyper aware of everything um I suffered from absolutely crippling anxiety disorder for about a year and I didn't connect it directly to Simon's death um but it manifested in a very very physical way where I started getting these um I don't know how to describe them. They were, I guess they were panic attacks, but not where I'd have tight breathing, but where I'd go very, very dizzy and lose kind of um, a real sense of gravity with my body. And it would happen specifically when there was bright light above me. It was really, really strange. Um, but it, I guess it's a kind of disassociation. Um, and I had it for about a year. And just this real feeling of disconnect with my body. It was really horrible. And I kept on going back to the doctors and they were like, there is nothing wrong with you, but we're worried about the fact that you're so stressed out. Um, But I just was convinced that um, they must have something wrong because it felt so, so real. Um, And it took, it took a long time for it. I didn't have any, um, any real sort of medical intervention. Right. Um, It kind of just went and then it came back in a little space and I went to see the doctor and the doctor was like, look, you've just got to remember that your brain's like a radio and you have to learn how to switch stations. And that was like, <laughs> whoa, whoa. 
that was huge. Um, just the idea that I could shift my thinking, which seems it seems so obvious. That's really nice. That's really nice, actually, because sometimes that's all you need is just to stop focusing on that one thing that you're always looking at because it's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. But to think, oh, I might look at that flower. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not saying that is the case. Obviously, like obviously um, that's not. not you know like the case for all um, mental health. Um, conditions you know everyone all conditions are different and all people are different and some people require different types of intervention or medication and I completely fully support um all you know whatever you need to feel better but for me that was um a game changer and it's never something that has completely gone away completely and I I know that um that if I'm tired, if I'm stressed, if I'm sad, those are kind of danger zones for feeling anxious. But I feel like um, as I progress through life, I'm better and better equipped with the tools to kind of not only deal with it, but also identify the warning yeah. signs. Um, but that was something very, very new to me to feel like that at that, at that stage. And I think it was quite scary because I didn't know my brain could behave yeah. like that. And and also, I think um, when all the kind of physical tests come back as negative or the doctor's saying, well, actually, there's nothing physically yeah. wrong with you, that's even scarier because you know that something's wrong, yet it's not marrying up with yeah. the data that's available. Let me say that. It, it's about what's available um, rather than what actually is. Yeah. It's not a definitive line. Um but one thing actually that's occurred to me recently, sorry, off on a tangent, um, but is that you can walk down the street and you can see a physio, an osteopath, a chiropractor shop that's open. Um, but where's the mental health shop? Like, why is there not someone with, um, you know, mood work or, uh, you know, whatever the, the shop title? Why is there not one of those on the high street? Like, why doesn't it exist? Yeah. It's, cra- it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, one of the things actually, just back on nutrition um, flex that we were on earlier, is that um, one of the first things I do if I start to feel like, okay, I'm anxious, my brain, you know, like I'm, you know, I'm really getting sucked into lots of negative thinking and I'm tired. And one of the first things I look at actually is eating a lot of fat. Yeah. Um, it seems to, yeah, it's an it's an immediate sort of like nervous system calming down yeah. thing. So I'll you know up my um, sort of fatty fish. Um, I'll eat some cheese, which I don't eat very much of yeah. usually. Um, I'll eat some cheese. I'll eat full fat Greek yogurt, um, and that really helps. And also turkey, which I don't eat very often, but seems to be a really good quick fix for feeling high and trip fan as well same with cheese cheese and turkey tripped fan amino yeah so that seems to really help if I feel like I'm feeling quite frazzled and burnt out I tend to eat eat a load of fat (laughs) um and leafy greens yeah and that really really helps really really helps and yeah and keeping an eye on what vitamins I've been taking um, especially B vitamins, um, but that you know, just having more knowledge around nutrition yeah. and how you literally can—well, I can literally eat to 
calm myself down, which <laughs> sounds a bit strange, but it does it does really help. Kind of filling myself with a good amount of calories and food can really, really support my mental health. That is not going to sound strange to two nutritionists. No, therapists. but it does sound strange <laughs> to the majority of people. You're absolutely yes, right. It does. It does. The conversations I have around, you know, tendon health and have you had enough fat, yeah. um, that sort of stuff is... And I can feel it in people's tissues if they're not eating enough fats and they're not um, drinking enough fluid. It feels totally different in their tissues when when you're working with them. So these conversations happen quite organically in a treatment session. Um, I know, you know, Laura and I have had those. Um, but yeah, makes sense. It's really good that you're so switched on to that. And uh, Claire is right. It is not the common theme and particularly you see everyone talking about how with COVID everyone needs to exercise they need no one's talking at all about nutrition or hydration or any of those key things at all and it's Crazy. it's one of those things yeah and also look people I feel like there's a lot of conversations around or you know um if you're you know if you're stressed you're going to eat more which is bad there's lots of conversations around you know again these like unhealthy kind of like social narratives around body image and what you should like look like and you know, eating when you're stressed is bad. So you'll put on weight if you're stressed. We're actually, you know, the last thing you should be thinking about when you're stressed is whether or not you're putting on weight. You should be thinking <laughs> about if your nervous system is happy. And if you're feeling, you know, nervous system happy, then you'll automatically be feeling healthier anyway. I'm sure that's a bit of a black and white way of looking at it. But no, yeah. if you can, no it's not yeah. a black and white way at all. <laughs> but Where it is. Yeah. Bad is like, you know, you're. When you're feeling sad and stressed, the immediate thing you need to be looking at is fixing feeling sad. Nourishing and yourself doesn't doesn't really matter. It's as you say, you just kind of feel it in your body that you need it. So now, is there anything else that we should talk about? That's really good. There are lots of tidbits in here that are really interesting, and um, I've enjoyed it. Is there anything either of you would like to add? It's your chance to plug yourself, Laura. <laughs> I feel like I plug myself quite a lot. Well, we'll uh, we'll put we'll put links to your to your website and to your Instagram page on there, and any information that you want to send me. As I said, please send that to me. And Claire, I'll always put your bits and pieces on the show notes as well, as usual. But. Um, if that's all for now, then I will. Oh, did you? Have if you want to see what what circus performers really do, what the real circus performers do, then go and <laughs> go and look at Laura's Instagram and see the tricks that she can achieve. And and yeah. you know, it's absolutely incredible. Like it, you know, from a physio point of view, I always just look at the physicality of it the amazing movements and what you can get your body to do and and the trust that you have in your body um so if you're not sure you don't know what what circus is all about then that's a good place to start go and watch some of laura's videos online i agree thanks i agree and thanks, Deb. What a great, what a great interview. It's been fun. Oh, it has been fun. Listen, thank you so much. You guys are amazing women. And um, it just ticks all the boxes of inspiring and informing. So anyway, I hope that you have a good week. And I hope that whatever, you know, you're working on just thrives and grows and goes in the ways you in the way you want it to. So thank you. 
Well, folks, that's all for today. I really appreciate your sitting in and listening in to Laura share her story about how she maintains her own health and well-being and all the things that she's accomplished thus far. And it's really going to be exciting to see how she continues to grow and thrive. So be sure and follow her on Instagram. All of those details will be provided on the show notes, as will details for Claire. If you would like to get in touch with either of them, please do so. And my email is always included in the show notes. Now then, I'd also like to apologize for the screeching sound on my part. I was having difficulties with my microphone, so there is a bit of scratching in the background. So I hope that didn't create any issues when you were listening to this podcast. So then there are a couple of things that I'd like to talk with you about as always. And one of them is going to be, you've got it. It's about that Belican. You have got to bounce soft to feel good. And I am absolutely loving my Belican. It is one of the best things that I've been able to add to my exercise routine. The research on the benefits of rebounding continues to grow in its favor. So if you'd like to ask any questions about rebounding or the Belican, be sure and get in touch with me. I'm an affiliate and am delighted to be associated with such an excellent organization. I'd also like to remind you of a few things. Our event that was going to be September this year has been rescheduled to March. It is on the multifaceted effects of gut health. I am thrilled to say that we have got Dr. Alan Desmond, Dr. Elizabeth Phillips, sports medicine physio Claire Senton, and Dr. Caroline Gilmartin joining us. We will be having this event, whether it's in person or online, so watch this space. I'm happy to say that several of these speakers are able to join on podcasts, so I'll be sure and let you know when they're going to be on so you can tune in. I'd also like to say how much I appreciate those of you who are sending me emails. I really appreciate each and every one of your comments and each and every one of you listening to these shows. Because don't forget, the objective of these podcasts is to support, collaborate, communicate, educate, and inspire one another. And you inspire me. So thank you so very much. I hope you'll continue to listen. And if you haven't done so, please leave me a review and also share this with other people that you think might find it a benefit. I'd also like to remind you that I have a new podcast that I am delighted to be co-hosting with Linda Sims and Andrea Burton, and it's called Cancer Talks, and I'll be sure and provide a link for that on the show notes as well. Thank you again for joining me. I know we are all in a strange sort of a surreal moment in time right now, so I really appreciate your taking the time out to tune in to these shows. I have a great rota of guests joining me over the next few months, so until next time, I'd like to wish you and yours the very best of health. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.